guitars rain soul around. Turn up the dial, kick back, we're freedom bound. So pack up your bags and throw me the keys. Welcome to episode 23 of Women of the Wagons, where the men aren't the only ones with stories from the wagon trail. I'm your host, Cass Patterson, and in true Cass Patterson form, after the ninth form, Women of the Wagons form, I'm running a couple days late. I apologize about that, but this is the first time I've done it in quite a while, so I, I, I hope that you forgive me. So we're going to start off this second episode of our Best of Women in the Wagons, and we're going to start off with an interview that I was super excited to do, but I was also extremely nervous to have this conversation. Uh, back in June, I got to sit down and talk with Dina Sutherland. Now, to me, this interview was an interesting one because I'd never actually got to just sit and talk with Dina. Usually we were on the barns and there was so much going on that once we started a conversation, it rarely got finished. So when Dina and I got to just sit down for an hour and talk, I really was excited. And listening back to this conversation, it was really hard to pick just one part to share. But the part of the conversation that I've picked covers a couple of different areas. First, it's Dina's barrel racing and rodeo career. Second, it's raising kids on the wagon trail and so much more. Well, let me back up. I think I was very fortunate in that, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So when I first started, I did not get the automatic barrel racing horse. I got the um, $200 horse from the auction mark to try and, and barrel race. But that only made me um, tougher and stronger and probably more determined because I would see other girls winning and, and I definitely wasn't winning, but, but it just made me work harder because I wanted it even, even more. So I think that was good. But then, um, oh, I don't know how old I was, Cass, but uh, my mom and I bought, um, well, my mom bought it for me, but bought this true barrel horse. It was my first real barrel horse. And his name was Charm. And uh, him and I had a bond. Um, like no other no other horse I've had with him and I you know we not only traveled over hundreds of thousands of miles together but you know him we would go riding for 12 hours a day if I didn't have to go to school or if I didn't have to work um, so you know we spent we I spent more time with that horse than I spent with anybody else um, um, when I had him so he was my first barrel racing horse and, and gave me a lot of lot of success won me everything that basically that I've won um, and gave me the confidence to move on to train barrel horses which which I did after I moved on from from charm but there was kind of a neat story I'm thinking of is um, charm had to go in for surgery and uh, so I took him into the vet clinic and and charm was a very high spirited he was not an easy horse he was very high spirited um, didn't trust anyone um, but me and, and of course his previous owner that had had him. But so he was in the vet clinic, not, not uh, wanting to participate. And uh, we went into this, the surgery room, which is padded where they, where they put them to sleep for surgery. And uh, I went in with them and I was just talking to him and the vet said, and I, I was quite young still, I was 16 or something, 17 at the time. And he said, I've never seen a horse respond to an owner's voice. Um, like this horse is responding to you because I could just talk to Charm and tell him, you know, it's okay, I'm here. And, uh, and he felt safe. So yeah, he was, he was my best friend growing up. 
He was your first true love. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Very true. Uh, that's really cool. I, I've never heard you talk about your barrel racing days, and it's always been something I've always been interested in. Kira's told me a little bit, Dayton's told me a little bit, but they don't give you justice. Well, I didn't ever imagine I was going to be a chuck wagon racer wife. I imagined my husband was going to support me. And I can always remember warming up rodeos. And if there was chuck, chuck wagons there at the rodeo, I'd look over and think, oh, my God, that looks like a gong show, which I have a complete different perspective <laughs> now because I know how hard work it is. And honestly, uh, us as barrel racers and rodeo people, um, have it way easier because we're looking after way less horses than than truck wagon people are and that sort of thing. So um, I I definitely was wrong in my point of view at one point in my very early age of a 15 or 16 or 14. I don't know how old I was, but anyways, yeah. So I didn't imagine it, but I wouldn't trade it for for the world. I'm happy with my choices and and uh, I love the truck wagon family lifestyle. Well, you're a killer chuck wagon wife and one of the nicest people I've met, so I'm just going to Thank you. <laughs> um, so you went to university too, though. Mark and I both went to um, University of Alberta. We started out at Grand Prairie Regional College, um, both becoming teachers. And then I actually got into the University of Lethbridge and Mark got into the University of Edmonton. So um, prior to us getting married, so that was not going to work because we didn't want to be apart. So. Um, we both ended up at the University of Edmonton and uh, got our teaching degrees. Um, yeah, that's that's where we ended up. And ironically, we both don't teach teach anymore, but um, we both love love the role and love the career. It just didn't pay enough, and uh, people think it fits into the chuck wagon um, calendar, but but it doesn't. You don't get enough time off. We actually need from about you know, this April to till about September off in order to chuck wagon race or be able to work remotely one or the other. And uh, of course, when you're teaching, you can't do that. Now, were you still rodeo rodeoing at that point or had you given rodeo up before you went to university? No, I was still, I was still rodeoing and I actually took my horse charm that I'd mentioned and uh, uh, my other horse Tex down to Edmonton uh, at that point, you know, we had bought a house in Mill Woods in Edmonton, and uh, that was on the very, very outskirts of Edmonton at that point, and there was still riding arenas, so I could actually, where I rode was right now probably in the, not in the heart, but in, in Edmonton, right in the city sort of thing, so I was still exercising my horses. I got pregnant with our first child, Kira, um, when I was in university. My last year of university, I was actually pregnant. And uh, once we had Kira, I had still had my horses, but uh, I started training that spring and just found it too hard. So that's when I made the, it was a hard decision, but the, the right decision um, to sell my barrel horses and, and uh, just work with Mark on the chuck wagon dream. So you had Kira, and I'm lucky enough that I'm friends with both your children, and you raised amazing children, so I'm going to give you that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> They're both pretty great. One talks me off a ledge some days. The other one talks me onto the ledge. We'll figure <laughs> out which one. I think I know which one does what. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you got to raise them in a very unique way with having the chuck wagon world. 
and also you having your background with the rodeo world. And I know uh, as Kira got older, she tried to do some barrel racing. Um, but what was it like to raise both of them? Both completely different people, by the way. Uh, both have very different personalities, but in this world. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't change it for anything. Um, I, I know people have heard it time and time again, but, you know, the chuck wagon family and that lifestyle is one of the best parts about what we do. And it really does create a community where, um, you know, we look after everyone's kids, whether um, we're close with them or not, you know, we're all looking out for them and they get to have quite a bit of freedom. They, they learn responsibility when they're on the chuck wagon circuit because they're helping with the animals. They learn scheduling because we're always scheduled to be somewhere at some point or looking after horses at some point. And I think one of the greatest benefits for chuck wagon kids um, is they really learn how to uh, speak and host people. They're, they're great ambassadors um, for the sport. And that's not an easy skill. And a lot of people don't have it even, even as adults. So I think that's a, a great skill that, that the chuck wagon kids um, get. But in the same breath, it's not easy because they are basically giving up um, whatever interest they might have um, to follow us on the chuck wagon circuit. So they don't get the outside interest. So, you know, yes, Kira did start try barrel racing, but she really didn't get a, you know, a good opportunity to try it because we were always on the chuck wagon circuit. So I, of course, couldn't, um, it, I guess I could, but it wasn't easy, let's say, to take her to different rodeos um, to barrel race because I was busy helping Mark with the chuck wagons, right? So, um, and it's hard for girls because and I mean, it's very obvious there's, there's been the odd outriding uh, girl and there's, you know, been one chuck wagon driving. Well, there's a couple actually right now, active chuck wagon racing women. But, you know, for the most part, women um, provide the support role in chuck wagon racing. So for a young girl growing up in it, it's not easy for them unless they fall <laughs> in love with another chuck wagon driver. And I mean, that's something we always kind of joke about. There's no real where for them to go in the sport. So if they haven't developed outside interests, when they become 20 or whatever time they, they leave home for a girl, um, it's very hard for them. They're, you know, and I'm sure Kira would say that it, you almost feel lost in a way because what you've been doing for the last 20 years, you all of a sudden no longer do. And it's not that she couldn't, um, come with us and continue with us, but you also have to develop your own life. And then on the boy's side, and you know, I heard you say it many times as well, and we've all heard Dayton say it as I was never asked um, if I was going to chuck wagon, but when I was going to chuck wagon race, right? And you know, for me, I didn't encourage Dayton to chuck wagon race. Um, I, if he wanted to do it, that's fine. But you know, I I also remember him as a very young boy. We were coming home from hockey practice. He was sitting in the back of the truck. Dayton's a real deep thinker, always has been a deep thinker. I can tell you about his thoughts on homeless people in Seattle when he was about seven, but, um, you know, he's always a deep thinker. And he said, mom, do I have to be a chuck wagon racer? And I said, no, you can be whatever you want. And I said, in fact, be a hockey player. They make way more money than, than we do. And so for a long time, he'd have magazine articles or whatever kind of posted of, of guys 
successful in, in hockey versus chuck wagon racing. But again, it's very hard because that's all he knows. Um, all of his connections, everything, he, you know, all summer long, it's chuck wagon racing. Yes, he was exposed to hockey during, during the winter. But again, things like, say, roping or something in the rodeo, Dayton had interest in it, but he wasn't exposed to it because there was real, no real time or opportunity to, uh, to do it. So it's good and bad. Or not bad, I guess, but there's just, you're, you're limited sometimes in the opportunities that, that they get provided to them. It's like everything in life. There's two sides of every coin. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. actually, I, me and Kira were just talking about this. I met Kira four years ago, five years ago, but Dayton was playing for the Flyers and I was at a Bisons game. It was the Flyers and Bisons. And me and Dayton have talked about this, but I remember Dayton as a hockey player being a really good hockey player but I always have this image of him walking out of the dressing room and sitting on the bench and there's just sitting there and thinking. I'm like, okay, I don't know many guys that do that, but sure. Yeah, Dayton's always been, been a deep thinker and, and uh, sometimes it's hard to know what, he's, what he is thinking, but uh, yeah, he's, I remember a time we were on a family vacation in Seattle and uh, Dayton was just young, he was about, I don't know, five or six, and, and uh, he was intrigued by homeless people. And this happened before we traveled to Seattle, but there's a lot of, you see a lot of homeless when you're down by Pike Marketplace in Seattle and that sort of thing. And uh, anyways, we had stopped on our way to Seattle and picked some blackberries out of the ditch on a bush. And, and then we went fishing and caught some fish in this creek or whatever. So anyways, we'd done a few family activities and all of a sudden Dayton says in the truck, he goes, you know, Seattle would be a great place to be homeless as compared to Calgary. And uh, I can't remember if it was Mark or I, but we said, oh, why, why do you say that? And he said, well, look at, there's all the food you need. You can fish, you can get berries, like there's no, no cost for food. And he said, and it's warm all the time. So you don't have to worry about being cold like you would in Calgary. Oh, good point if you want to be homeless, but uh, yeah, so you know, Dayton's very, very thoughtful and and uh, yeah, a thinker, very kind soul. That's entertaining. I, that, it, it's a smart way of thinking, but um, I find it very interesting. I mean, me and you have known each other since I randomly showed up on your doorstep trying to do an interview <laughs> with Mark, and I went to the wrong place and felt like a complete idiot, but we're not going to get into that. <laughs> Um, but you are a support system in the check wagon. You do everything from wrapping the, wrapping the horse's legs to helping with the food, to hooking the horses, to taking care of the horses, training, like that part, you're a jack of all trades. I'm pretty sure if you want to get into the box, you could drive yourself, but I'm not going to encourage <laughs> you to do that if you don't want to. <laughs> I'm not crazy enough to cast. <laughs> um, but this past year, me and you have had a couple of conversations where you made the choice of working with Mark on the pipeline because you wanted to be on the road. You didn't want to do the whole, you're in Calgary for so long and then you drive or you miss a show. You wanted to be there. So kind of what was the evolution to getting to that point where you made that decision, no, this is what I want to do? 
Well, I honestly, I've been there before. So when we were having kids and we were younger, I was always on the chuck wagon trail um, full time. And those were some of the best, best summers. And I think you don't, again, you don't appreciate it um, when you're in it until you, you don't have that anymore. So when the kids were gone, um, we thought, well, maybe I should get a full-time job and, and help with the income. So got a full-time job, but then you can't be on the chuck wagon circuit so much. And I, I did, I missed um, being on the trail full-time and, and helping. I didn't miss, you know, what actually one of the best parts was missing moving days because moving days, if anybody knows, are grueling. They're, you know, almost 24 hour days where you're loading up 50 head of horses and blah, 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 blah. And hauling 10 hours or seven hours or what, not 10 hours, seven hours to the next one and, and unloading and unpacking again. So when I was working full time, I got to just fly into or drive into whatever location. So I got to miss moving days. Which was good, but but no, I've I've been on kind of all sides, um, being full time on the chuck wagon circuit to to working, and I remember one of the chuck wagon wives saying, "Oh, you're so lucky because I was just you know showing up sort of thing," and and she didn't think I was still working in the barn. And I said, "Well, I'm still helping helping in the barn," and then I said, "You know, be careful what you what you wish for because not being here full time is not so great either, right?" Um, so I did miss it. And yeah, we made the decision um, a couple of years ago. I, I quit my job where I was at and um, we I didn't have another job or another solution, but we just said we'll make it work. And uh, and so that we could be on uh, together full time because, um, yeah, with Mark, he consults in the winter. And so lots of times he's gone. Um, you know, he's worked in White Court all winter even this winter, him and I worked up in, in Pink Mountain, BC. So if you're gone all winter and then you're on the chuck wagon trail all summer, you don't really see each other too often unless you make that choice um, to be together. So I, I would not go back again to, to working full time and not being able to be on the circuit. Um, yeah, and you're right, you know, I've supported, I've been uh, the chef, I've been the mom, I've been the horse caretaker, I've been uh, the fundraiser. I've done a lot of jobs. I was the statistician for the Chuck Wagon Association for a few years. I worked with Les McIntyre up in the announcer booth. Done, done a lot of, lot of things. Um, I think the one support type system that I fail miserably at is just the the emotional ups and highs and lows of, of competing. When I competed, I was never nervous um, and never really got upset if I didn't win. And I, you know, I won quite a bit in my barrel racing career. Um, but it's really hard to support, um, well, my son and my husband now in that because I get extremely nervous for them. And it's just because I want them to win so badly for them. Not for me, I couldn't. It doesn't matter to me, um, but it's hard to support them through the through the highs and lows. I, I think we need a maybe a psychology degree to to help with that. Not that Mark or Dayton is a terrible loser because they're both they're both really good sportsmen. So I don't want to paint that picture, but but it is it is hard to know what to say when you're at the Calgary Stampede and something you know, goes wrong that, that shouldn't have happened or you're sitting at the top and all of a sudden you take a tumble to number 36 or whatever. 
every wagon wife has been there and it's it's hard to to support them through that or know what to say or or know what to do like i said picking a part of that conversation was really hard to do because dina is just such an interesting lady to talk to and a lot like the next lady that I got to chat with, um, as she's referred to in an interview we did with her husband, Rick Fraser, on After the Ninth, she's referred to as the hub of Team 23. Sue Fraser was my guest on episode 7 of Women in the Wagons, and Sue and I got to talk a lot about the early years of Team 23, taking a break from wagon racing, and then starting their own business, coming back to the wagons, and then ultimately retiring from wagon racing, and also her love for the community that the sport has and the people involved. Yeah, he had, we had, not he had, but we had, you know, kept kind of just going year to year. And um, we had talked about it, never totally in depth, but we, neither of us really had a definite answer for it. And I think for me, I didn't want to be the one to pull the plug for the dream that he had. I mean, it was always his dream. I was his wife and we lived it together. And that was what we had always decided on. And, it, and so it was good. Um, then, you know, we had some interesting last couple of years within the circuit and different things. And, and again, he, you know, he, he had at one point said, at the age 50 well that came and gone and so I don't know we just we were outside and and I just something in my heart just thought you know I think I need to say something and so I did we were somewhere out there and I just said you know what I think it's time and he looked at me and he said okay it's time he said I'll phone Les McIntyre today and I'm like oh my god <laughs> did I just say that did he just say that and that's pretty much how it played out and and then I don't know like I think you know from there the ball got rolling and um so there was lots of interesting emotions there too like we didn't we never really thought of how it would all go or or you would feel and you know and we had such a great couple that was helping us that year from New Zealand Kim and David and uh they were quite excited to be on the road with us. And so we had to let them know as well that it would be just kind of half a season for them. And we felt kind of bad for them because, you know, they, they were excited to, to get going on the road, but, you know, we gave them the option. We said, you know, if, um, if you wish to go with another outfit, we will help you get to one. And so they didn't answer right away. They said, let us think about it. And then they came back and they said, no, we're going to stick with you till, you know, Calgary's over and then we'll go from there. And we thought, wow, like that's huge. Like they had commitment to us. And so then that was when we decided that after Calgary was done, we would take, you know, take a couple of weeks and then we'd go to Rocky mountain house and enjoy that. And so we did, but, um, so yeah, getting back to that statement that we, we did it, you know, it did, even though we knew, at that time that yeah it probably was the time to do it it was still tough you know you have the excitement of of knowing and people that's the talk of the talk of the town and um then you've got your horses and i remember my daughter telling me and i can't remember when it was kaylee said to me said mom do you re do you realize that when you leave calgary you're going oh, you're leaving with an empty li liner 
and I'm like, holy, <laughs> you know, and I never thought of that. Um, so that was tough too, because you had to sell all the horses or most of them anyways. And um, yeah, it's uh, so many emotions, but it's, it's, and I often tell people, you know, they, we were asked, um, how do you feel about it? Um, how's it going? And it's just like, I always tell Ray, it's just like going through a, a death. You have to go through all those emotions. And somebody also had told me, they said, you know, for every, like, this is for athletes or whatever you, it's going to take, what was it? Every, it's going to take three years for every one year that you that you compete in and I'm like holy <laughs> so yeah there's it just can it does continue but um we stayed you know in uh we went the next year and we didn't know we didn't want to judge but we wanted to still kind of be involved uh somewhat and so Rick you know we got involved in with the Pinocchio Stampede uh driving the stagecoach and then we also went with to Calgary and Rick got to be on the radio so that, that was awesome so it gave us a little bit of an in but uh, again many 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 emotions they're maybe not quite as tough now but they're still there for sure I remember that next year at Stampede because I was doing some reporting in the back there and I walked past Rick and I did a double take and I'm like aren't you supposed to be like letting your wife choose what you're doing this summer? Like, why are you here? <laughs> and he's like, and it was fun. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, it's true. I remember coming home when we did come home and it was not long after. And it's like, there's no horses in the pasture, no horses running up into the pens and the weeds are growing higher and it's like oh this isn't right you know let's turn back the clock you know or seeing the chuck wagon sitting there and it's like oh my gosh we should be there and so yeah you have to go through those emotions and I you know I tell anybody that's competing now you need to um I guess there's to a point you can be prepared but you still have to feel those emotions I guess um, for all those that are still in it, um, like today, who knows, you know, what's going to happen next year. Um, but be prepared on what you're going to do. Cause Rick and I did not have a plan moving forward. However, you know, things have been okay. So yeah, it's, uh, in, and it very interesting, but it's, it's been a good choice for us. We know we've talked about that lately. It's like, wow, like we're, we're so glad it happened that way. What was your kind of thought process when Cody said that he wanted to hop in the check wagon? Mm. Well, he started, he did do a year with us. So that was pretty cool in 2016. And, um, you know, he's grown into a, a tall, strong, good looking young fella and, and strong is totally it. Um, he'd been driving with Rick since he was 12 or whatever age it was. And um, so he grew up in the wagon box. He never out rode, didn't have the desire is he didn't have the build. He didn't want to do it. So, um, but the wagon driving, yeah, he had, uh, he had been in the box many times with Rick. So yeah, that 2016, was I nervous? Um, maybe a little bit, but more excited for him, you know, and that was something that people had often talked about, or I had been asked the question many times, 
you know, are you ever scared, you know, if Rick's going to get hurt or whatever. And um, for sure, like you, you, nobody wants an accident to happen. Things do happen. But we had talked and had anything happened as in death. Um, we knew that that would be okay because he would be doing something that he loved to do rather than riding in a vacuum truck, you know, going along the road. And not that that wasn't good to us, but his passion was a chuck wagon. So, um, and same for Cody, same thing. You know, if, if something was to ever happen in that realm, that would have been okay. Would it have been easy? Of course, it's not going to be easy. Um, you would still have to go through all those things. But, um, and it had has happened over the years in the chuck wagon world where there's been a few lives taken. Um, but again, they were doing something they loved. So um, you just go through it and, and deal with it and remember those people. So yeah, Cody, I, he's a, an amazing driver. Um, you know, I, I often think about when that first year he had come and we were in Grand Prairie. Grand Prairie is an amazing show and it's a, everybody's excited because it's the very first show of the year and it's a beautiful facility. And in the mornings are the best times because everybody's getting out there with their new horses and they're practicing and with the outriding horses. And um, so it's just, it's great. You get to, it's like a show on its own in the morning. And, you know, Cody had come out with his outfit and uh, it was, I think, Buddy and Neil Wajambar, whoever was standing on the, the railing and they're like, that kid's got it, you know? And so these are the, the guys that have gone before and uh, are now watching the kids and they, and that was the greatest compliment ever to hear those, those uh, former drivers say that was huge. So that in that self uh, makes me proud for sure. Will he ever be back? Well, we'll see what, you know, what the, if Chuck Wagon Racing ever comes back, but um, time will tell. No one knows. Um, we'll see what happens. It, you know, he was looking at coming back this year, but uh, with the things the way it went, uh, of course, that's not happening. So we will know if the time comes, when it comes. <laughs> um, we talked about the horses a little bit. And I mean, Kaylee talked about to you about uh, coming home with an empty liner. But before that, the horses, even now, I know you have some out there. They're a huge part of your family. They're a huge part of your life. Um, what was that like? What was your relationship with the horses? I mean, we've had Rip talk about his, but what was your relationship with them? You know, the horses were everything. Um, I would not call myself uh, a hands-on in one respect. Like I was not a vet. I was not, uh, I didn't do a lot of the wounds. We left them for uh, Kaylee um and whatever barn crew i had um so i i was not much for diagnosing those kind of things however i did all the barn chores along with the kids um and then i you know i didn't i didn't give them their medicines but i did all the feed um and my job at the races was the outriding horses i would ride them over if they needed to be rod road or I'd walk them over whichever I wasn't I was never afraid to w ride the horses I enjoyed it I I, I rode ki uh, horses as a kid um, so that was my job so once I left the barn I was at the track 
you know, handing them over to the outrun horses, bringing them back when they were hot. And so you had to be, uh, as, as a wife and there's not every wife does that. Um, but that was my job. And, uh, so yeah, I had, I still to this day just have, uh, a, a different kind of energy with the horses. Um, and even with our cats and our dogs and stuff, um, it's just a calming type relationship with them. And uh, I just find them such a, a powerful, beautiful animal. And I, re I will recall um, back in Pinoca, it was our first year running. I think it was 98. I think it was 98. And we had one, and I just uh, can't remember his name, but he, he was, we didn't have many horses back then. And he ended up getting sick with colic. And, oh, that was so hard. It, it, that was, because that was our first one that we, we had lost and he just, he wouldn't get better. He was twisted gut and he was rolling and this and that. And finally we said, you know, we, the vet had come and did what he could and, and we tried everything. And finally, after so many hours, we said, okay, we, we just can't let him be like that anymore. And so we had to put him down and, um, but holy smokes, like we cried. It's like, this is like one of your kids. And that was the first time I really felt that bondedness with, uh, with our horses. And, and as it went over the years, there was many more that, that you get attached to. And I know Rick said his grandfather, Grandpa Tom Dorchester always said, don't get attached to those. But everyone does. It doesn't matter who you are. You get attached to them because they are magnificent animals and they become your kids. And so, you know, some are better than others because some have different, they all have personalities. And um, so you bond to lots of them differently than others. But um, so that, yeah, that's, that was, that's where I was. The, my, my handling of the outriding horses and then, you know, brushing the horses and getting them ready for the, the races, uh, putting their saddles on, bridling them, all those kind of things. And I'd, I'd also harness with Rick, you know, I always, if they, if uh, we didn't have the, the other help there, I would get right in and do that as well. So yeah, the, the women of the wagons are, uh, do have many hands and jobs for sure. So the third interview I want to highlight on this episode of Best Of is the first female wagon contestant that was on the show. And what I mean by that is it's the first female participant in the sport whether it be an outrider or a driver. And I was thankful to get the opportunity to talk with May Gorst earlier this year. May has deep roots in the wagon community with her family and is also a horsewoman who loves the sport and the animals. And I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with May because she has some unique insights into the sport's past, its present, and its future. Now, do you think that there's been an evolution in the safety of outriding um, and in the safety of the sport? sport uh, since you started when you were 14 years old? Oh, yes, um, because uh, I started in a cowboy hat, and then um, I, I started wearing a helmet in 80, 81, and yeah, like, so yeah, the safety factor, yes. Now, how do you, I mean, this is completely uh, a, a selfish question for me, but how do you think the sport could get safer? How do you think we can evolve from this COVID-19 situation and we can help promote the sport and help keep it going? Well, yeah, like that, it's scary because like now, like a lot of the businesses, 
uh, for sponsors, you know, like a lot of the businesses are, will they be available for sponsors for these next couple of years? And like for the, to even the shows, you know, like that's, um, I hope it don't affect too many people, but like I'm crossing my fingers. that don't, you know, like that's the sponsorship and getting down the road. And like now, like it's another 12, 12 months of feeding your horses, eh? And, keeping them sound and safe and hopefully, you know, everything goes great for the summer. I've heard it's been said that check wagon racing is in a sense, it's the biggest um, animal rescue program that there is because these horses, uh, some of them can't be ridden. Some of them, there's just, they, it can't happen. They are meant to be on a wagon. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yes. It, it's a big thing, yeah. A um, lot, lot of the horses, like, um, let's say they had some knee problems and whatnot, they can't take the weight of a rider. So just with the harness, like, the harness don't weigh that much in collar. And, yeah, like, I, it's pretty, I'm saying yes. It saves many, many horses. Perfect. Is there anything that I didn't touch on about your career or about uh, the sport that you would like to talk about? Uh, no, I think we covered it all. Um, um, I know I've had lots of young girls talk to me about outriding and everything else. And yes, um, if you are wanting to be an outrider, please have lots of horse sense. Like, that's the biggest thing all I can say is, like, I had the force of being two years old, being put on the workhorse, and then graduated to ponies, to big horses, to race horses, thoroughbreds, quarter horses. You know, like, uh, just have, like, lots of ability to have the horse knowledge. So from where you stand, and I've heard it from others, the horse sense is what helps you be a great outrider. Yes, big time, yeah, because um, you got to know how to read your horse. Like, like sometimes the horses get excited, like, just, you know, like, flags and you name it and like if you're calm then your animals stay calm that's how I find and but if if you're nervous excited the horses feed off of you too eh? it's funny you mentioned that because I had a conversation um just a couple days ago with a current driver and we were talking about what it takes to help when it comes to uh tricky situations in the in really on the field Um, and she said that it will take someone being calm and being able to calm a horse down that's the best way to get out of a tricky situation and that's what I'm hearing from you right now oh yeah yeah it is yeah like um, like they feed on like if 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 you're nervous like uh, like my thoroughbred he's 13 years old I can tell when people are nervous like he gets super excited and to where I have a grandson that's five years old, he's just super quiet and calm around him, drops his head, loves to be brushed, and then put the saddle on, and he he rides with me. He'll ride in front, and I'll be behind, you know? Like, animals feed off off a lot of what, what other people are around them, yes. 
I think that's something that the sport has worked really hard on working on, especially Les McIntyre when he says quiet on the set, and then he explains why we need to be quiet on the set because it's just understanding the animal that much more and understanding the athlete that much more. Yes, yes, so true. And, you know, like this year now, like the racetracks are allowing spectators, you know. Like I know horses feed off the cheering, you know, like of, of the clapping, you know, so I, I'm waiting to see how this, the racing aspect, like the thoroughbreds, uh, how that's going to be this year, you know, like, cause there's hardly going to be any spectators allowed. It's just going to be watching over TV or, or, um, simulcast or whatnot, eh? Computers. No, do you think, in a sense, that hinders um, the horses because they don't get used to having those people around? Well, you know, like, you, you watch them parade, like, at a track and whatnot, and, like, those horses, like, it's like, you know, people be looking at them and whatnot, and, like, those horses start to prance and whatnot. They're They're showing their excitement and, like, they're some get too excited, you know, and so it hinders them on the racetrack. But, you know, like the old class horses, like you can tell, like they, they walk around like they're calm and cool and people say, oh, that horse don't look like it's going to race. And, you know, they go out and do their best and they show that they're class racehorses. Now, do you, um, kind of think of how to word this, sorry, <laughs> um, do you think that there's been an evolution in the way that uh, drivers and outriders deal with the horses as the sport has continued to go on? Oh, yes, big time, yes, yeah. Like, um, like people have different ways of doing things in everything and and then you just, like, watch, and, and some people learn off of, off of other people and, and go for advice from the, like, the the senior drivers and stuff and and uh yeah like i think it's it's good you know like to have the the new and the young and the old and and just being involved yeah that was your alignment for this episode brought to you by the alberta collagen association of chiropractors don't let pain prevent you from reaching your goal to be a champion now the next lady i have on isn't a wife a sister a daughter or a competitor of the sport but she is passionate about it and loves it, well, just as much as I do. However, Shelly shares her love for the sport through, not through interviews or podcasts, but through the photos that she takes. Shelly Scott is one of the World Professional Checkwagon Association's official photographers. To do all these shows, you have to have the proper equipment. You have to have the proper um lenses body uh like you said even computers you need a proper computer to edit on so i mean breaking it down to the nitty-gritty it's not a cheap hobby and it's not even a hobby it's a it's a full-time job plus a full-time job that's actually you know a lot of it and i think a lot of people i don't want to say people are naive and don't understand but it is very when you tell people how much your equipment and stuff is worth, they kind of like take a second look at you and they're like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> really? So when I started out, you know, I bought, I, I shoot all Nikon equipment. Um, and when I started out, I bought just kind of 
what I thought would be a good lens and what I thought would be a good body, you know, that was in the price range that I had to work with. And from there, I think I'm, I've had, I'm up to like upgraded three times to three, I'm on the third body now um, of the camera. And the lens is, I'm on the second lens. So I've upgraded my lens as well. Plus all the other lenses that you use just for shooting other stuff. And I actually bought, um, it's very, like a lot of the rodeo guys, you'll see them with like the really huge, huge heavy lenses that are kind of the zoom on them is about 400 millimeters and they're really heavy <laughs> and very expensive. So I actually went a different route with mine. Um, I, and then again, those lenses are too much um, zooming in for the track wagons and stuff to get your full outfit shots. So I actually, and I have always kind of went with this model. I've used the 70 to 200 millimeter lens as kind of, you know, my staple and kind of work around that. And for the rodeos, I actually, when I upgraded to the lens that I have now, I actually got what's called a converter and you put it in between the lens and the camera body and it just zooms, zooms you in a little bit more. You do lose a tiny bit of image quality there but just for versatility you can just pop that little thing in and out and a lot of places that we're at like Calgary for example you know I don't have an RV there I'm not even parking right at site so I'm just packing a backpack in for the day so you can pack that and then just flip that little piece in and out and be ready to go from rodeo to shoot the truck so probably right now and i'm always hesitant to get rid of some of this little bit older equipment too just in case something goes wrong and you have to have something to back you up so i was thinking about this the other day and probably i have over twenty thousand dollars of equipment that i'm kind of just going with every day and not only that there's also the expenses of going down the road um, so again, I don't have an RV or anything and I always have to, um, when I'm away, I'm always kind of on call for work too. Or when we go to places like Pinoca, I'll kind of try to work in the morning, then shoot the rodeo, then do chores, shoot the chucks, then head back, process some photos, you know, so I need power. I need internet, not that RVs and stuff don't have those anymore, but staying at a hotel is, is usually going to be easier for me. So I have been still doing that. I, I keep going back and forth on the idea of getting the small motor home, but that's definitely another investment for another day. So there is, when I first started out, I was like, if I can just make enough money to keep my equipment up and keep all these expenses, so fuel, hotels, and all that kind of stuff paid for, I'm doing good. And actually the last couple of years, I've, I've actually you know, made some money doing it. So that's been really enjoyable for me. So you talked about chores. So I kind of want to get into what does a typical day for you look like uh, when you're on the road? You touched on it a little bit with Pinoka and, you know, kind of needing power and this, that, and the other thing. But for you, when you're out on the road, what does a typical day look like? Yeah, so for me, typical day, and these are kind of would be the shows where we where there's both the CPRA rodeo and the WPCA going on. So I would get up in the morning. I don't get up for morning chores, which is always kind of lazy of me, but 
I usually have quite a bit later nights just with trying to process the photos and, and that kind of thing. So I usually crawl out of bed, you know, anywhere between 9 and 11 in the morning and <laughs> whatever I have to do for work that day, get that all done and be dressed and ready and head over for the rodeo performance, which, which usually kicks off about one o'clock. And then the rodeo usually, so I would shoot that, it usually wraps up between three and four most places. And then from then I would usually, I head over to Chance Beacon's barn and help him and Rochelle and whoever they have as barn hands, help them with turning the horses out, doing the barn. Um, then I'll help try to help Rochelle with dinner or anything like that or anywhere else I can help. We usually chill for a little bit. Then it's time to start getting the horses ready. So there's baths, brushing, all that kind of stuff to get them ready for the races. And then one of my, I would say, passions is the outriding horses. Um, so I really love to help get them get ready. Um, so kind of the saddling and that kind of stuff of the outriding horses, Rochelle and Chance usually let me do that. Uh, and then depending on the show, uh, usually myself and someone else, I'll get my camera and stuff ready and we'll take the outriding horses over and then I will shoot the wagon performance, head on back and help again with barn chores and get the horses all fed and in for the night. Then Rochelle usually makes something wonderful to eat and we visit for a little bit, then it's back to the hotel and then I've been helping, um, Ryan do a bunch of the social media for the WPCA. So after every race night, um, myself and Fred have been trying to post some photos on the WPCA Facebook page as well as Instagram. And then once that's all wrapped up, if there's any of my actual work that I needed to get done as well, and then off to bed for another day. So the final episode that I wanna share on part two of the Women of the Wagons Best Of after many text conversation about wagons, the podcast, her first season as a driver in the Canadian Professional Chuck Wagon Association, I got to have Amber LaRue on. And my interview with Amber was really cool and exciting because these are conversations me and her have had multiple times. Like I said, many, many text conversations. And we even got to have them last year at the runoff in Dewberry where we just sat at my hotel and talked and I thoroughly enjoyed getting to bring her onto this podcast and sharing her insights and sharing just how it was for her. She grew up around the pony wagon circuit, her career as a pony wagon driver, her transition to the thoroughbreds and so much more. Well, it was always my goal to do it, but there was a lot of skepticism within my own household from my parents, you know, with the whole strength factor and the financial factor and just the transition period, you know, it's a, like, do you really want to do this? Cause they knew how the connection I had with those horses, but it was, there was a lot of factors that led into it. The number one thing being is it's something I always wanted to do. And I kind of went through a rough patch in 2017. And when I came out of it, I was like, you know, if you can get out of this slump in your life, you can do this. Like there, there wasn't much left. And even now today that I look at and I'm like, no, I, I can't do that. I don't have that belief anymore, I guess. I, 
I'm big on the structure of making plans, making goals, and just the mentality that I'm going to do this. So the hard part about the transition was actually, like, my dad is kind of on the way out of running ponies. So it was kind of the decision factor if we had two wagons on the go. And I was, the last two years I drove, I drove both hooks. And I was still racing carts to transition in young horses. So it was a lot, like driving three or four outfits a day. And with the ponies, it's there's not a big enough draw span. You know, with the big wagons, there's nine to 12 heats. And if you're running two outfits in the CPCA, for example, you usually put with your first hook in the first two to, like, you know, one to three heats, and then your other hook's in the very end. So it's usually the top-end guys that are running two hooks. But with ponies, they give you enough time to re-hook in quotation marks. <laughs> so you're scrambling. And it was just me and my dad for the most part. So we were putting in a ton of work. And... It was getting to be a lot. The last year I raced, I went down to one outfit. We'd sold most of the horses and my dad had retired. So we went down the road to semi and liner and one wagon outfit. And I had made the decision at that point. I had already, owned, I think I had seven thoroughbred spots that I was making the transition, but it just wasn't feasible anymore for the future of my career as a driver to keep running ponies. I was going to have to restructure my whole way of traveling and, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Like the family aspect was kind of going out of it. Cause all the people that I grew up with running ponies either retired or went big wagons. So I had lost all those connections. So I kind of sat back and was, what am I doing? You know, you're going down the road every weekend and for what, there's not much left to it. So I, uh, I sold the last few horses I had. And I think I kept three at the time. I still have two at home and, um one I gave to a buddy for a broodmare uh yeah so I started slowly buying horses I bought a wagon uh the big thing was getting sanctioned my parents didn't really want me to dive head in before they knew I could be sanctioned in terms of buying horses so I and I was adamant that I wanted to sanction with my own horses a lot of guys they'd borrow the wagon they'd borrow the harness they'd borrow the horses but the style of driving I've always had is very much connection-based. I will never drive a horse or race a horse that I can't get along with on the ground. So I wanted to know the horses that I was going to sanction with. So I had bought a lead team in March with the help of my parents because I wasn't in a good financial state at the time. I had saved up all my pennies at the time to buy another wheel team. And yeah, I sanctioned in Poundmaker and Little Pine in the summer of 2018. And it surprisingly went off without a hitch. And even after the first sanctioning, you go out there all by yourself and you just kind of prove that you can stop in the barrels, do your practice, do your practice turn, stop, be aware of your outriders, et cetera. And even after my first sanctioning, my parents, I can remember them being like, well, you got the first one down, but you still got one more to go before they're going to let you ride. <laughs> so there was always this skepticism that for some reason I wasn't going to fail the race because I was a girl. <laughs> That's funny. You talked to me a little bit about it last summer, I remember, but yeah. do you mind talking about the sanctioning process? Because I don't think uh, people really know about it. Yeah, it's and even reading in the rule book, there's a lot, of, you know, there's outlines for it, but you have to go out on your own. You have to contact the director of the association, and you have to have everything organized on your own accord as a driver. So, 
I had to line up my outriders for the morning of my test. I had to supply the outriding horses for them. And you have to schedule your time. You know, like mine was, I think it was nine o'clock in the morning, right after the morning track time for everybody. And Little Pine was my first one. So I made arrangements to borrow one of the other drivers' wagons so I didn't have to haul a wagon down. And I hauled all my horses down in my harness. And we hooked. And like I say, you have to do a mock race both times. But the first time, you're all by yourself with your outriders. Just, I think it's kind of a, I know it's a safety thing. So it's to prove that you can handle those horses and everything like that. So my first one went off good without a hitch. And then my second one, I scheduled in Poundmaker the following weekend. And I had to drive against another driver. And once again, you have to arrange all your outriding horses, all your track time, set it up and everything. And you have to pay a bit of a fee. I think it's 50 or $75 both times to, so it's not a waste of the association's time kind of thing. So, yeah, that's it's kind of like mock races to prove that you're capable of going out there and controlling and driving and your ability as a driver. Who did you race against? Um, for my sanctioning, I raced against Brad McMahon. He had a spare outfit that morning and was good enough to come out. And, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So you go through the sanctioning process, and then you – make your rookie season last year what was the season like kind of talk me through that and walk me through it it was a crazy roller coaster ride that I took one day at a time <laughs> I uh I had no idea like no absolutely no idea that it was going to be as big media wise or attention wise as it was because in my mind I still had this naive little thing that you know this is my little dream and this is what I've wanted to do my entire life. And, I, and I've always been raised, you know, you're just like one of the boys, you know, you, you get tough and you just go out there and race. So in my mind, that's what it was. You know, this is my dream. Nobody else cares. I'm going to go out there and do my own thing. You know, we're going to make everything pretty and try to be presentable and professional. But leading up to it, there was a lot of, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I had no, like, the first day of racing I was just like I was relieved to get it over with as terrible as that sounds because the amount of cameras and media attention that was there it was mind-blowing like I had I, I didn't have a clue that it was going to happen put it that way I was like oh yeah all my people from my hometown are going to show up and we're all going to wear pink and it's going to be like kumbaya and wonderful thing <laughs> but there was yeah a ton of cameras and I think it's called a risk you would know from the media thing where you in like eight different people or you know different media outlets interview you all at the same time uh if i'm wrong cast you mean you mean a scrum a scrum okay there you go that's the word for it one of the reporters informed me on the terminology of it she came up to me and asked me have you ever done a scrum before and i was like what like and this is just like the horses are just unhooked and turned in the pen and i was like what because she had came over earlier and visited with me and made me feel warm and fuzzy inside about the whole thing because i'm like sitting there like this little child pretty much like so unaware of what was happening and the impact it was going to have and yet she came over afterwards have you ever done a scrum I was like what no she's like well there's so many other news crews here and we all would like to interview at the same time so I think there was eight different media outlets right after the races and I got dirt in my hair and I'm a complete disaster so I threw a ball cap on I think at the time and could barely put words together but it came out all right but yeah like to think that that was going to happen I had no idea like yeah, there's no words for that sort of thing. 
I mean, and then you should be happy that they did a scrum because it would taking you all night otherwise. Oh, totally. And totally. And like looking back, I'm so grateful that I've like grown as a person from all of this and opened my eyes to the impact we've had from it. But yeah. And then once again, in my naive little mind, looking back on the season, I'm like, okay, if you can get through Battleford after the first stop, all this media attention, it'll go away after Battleford. You know, it, it will, it will go away. So I prepared myself that you know, just get through these three days, you know, stay clean, get through these three days. And then I think it was Monday after Battleford, I had another <laughs> and it was like either Monday or Tuesday after North Battleford, my phone rang and it was um, Mike who does the CBC sports little pieces during the Calgary Stampede broadcast. And I was lost for words that he wanted to come out and film and Calgary had sent him to come do a little blurt for Stampede. So that was like, oh, maybe this isn't just going to go for after Battleford. So we shot a bit in Hobima and Dewberry, and then it just kept rolling. And I don't think there was, I think the only show that there was in an interview, oh, no, Little Pine, I did the radio. So I, I don't think there was a show last summer where I, like I say, in my naive little mind, I thought it was all going to be over with after Battleford. But every weekend there was media outlets to talk to, and I've, I think I've grown a lot as a person from it, from speaking on the spot and everything. But yeah, it was a lot to take in as a rookie driver for sure. <laughs> what was Stampede like? Because uh, you got to come and be a part of that. And uh, you got to come out during the rodeo the one day and you were on uh, the Chuck Wagon uh, show the one night as an interview. So what was that like? An unbelievable little part of my dream come true like my biggest goal is to be the first female to race in Calgary one day and just being there makes you want it so so much more the atmosphere the energy of the hype of the wagons down there there's nothing like it like until you stood on that either tarmac or in a seat in that grandstand and I was lucky enough to I've always watched from the bucking shoots but just that energy being in that bowl, I call it, like, you know, in the where the two grandstands meet when they call that the wagons are coming out on the track, it's just electric. And, yeah, it makes me want it so, so much more. And I'm so thankful for Sam, like Calgary Stampede Board and everybody for having me and honoring me in the grand entry. It was, yeah, like, dream come true. So that is part two of the Women in the Wagons Best of episodes six to 10. Tune in next week to hear my latest conversation with one of the amazing women of the wagon community. If you're wanting more Chuck Wagon podcast content, you can tune in to the WPCA's Outside the Wagon. And of course, After the Ninth, hosted by Dayton Sutherland and myself. That new episode I talked about last time, it is coming. We're just figuring out our schedules again in true After the Ninth form, you know. It happens. But until next week, I'm Cass Patterson. And throw me the keys. Hi, I'm world professional chuck wagon driver Kurt Benzmiller. The hours of hard work and sweat it takes to be a champion can put your body to the test. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and sometimes you just need a chiropractor. 
Did you know that your chiropractor is specifically trained to help everything from neck strains to back adjustments to a foot sprain? Don't let pain get in the way of your goal towards the championship. Visit albertachiro.com for more information.